And with that, would you please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. And please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. This is what Holy Scripture says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You may be seated as I pray. Almighty God, we come to you humbly this morning asking for your help, your guidance, for your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts to hear from your word this morning. May we read and delight in your holiness through Christ. For his sake, amen. A holy God is entirely countercultural. A proper biblical understanding of holiness demands a response. Yet the world hates holiness. It wants nothing to do with holiness. But before we nominate ourselves as the sworn defenders of God's holiness, perhaps it would be best to consider whether we truly grasp what it means to worship and serve a holy God. Perhaps we would rather not emphasize the holiness of God in worship because it makes Him seem too far away as if He doesn't really dwell amongst us or come near to us. Or maybe we shy away from declaring the holiness of God in evangelism because a holy God is not nearly as enticing as one of just love and compassion. Or maybe we're alright with pressing holiness in these areas, but in our own walk, we lower its priority because after all, we wouldn't want to impose too much law and not enough grace. One could go on and on. And I must confess to you this morning that a biblical understanding of the holiness of God is no easy thing to accept. It does not allow for self-pride. It forces us to reconsider how we understand the concepts of good and justice Indeed, the holiness of God will taste extraordinarily bitter to those of us who have not experienced this God as their Father. Yet in a time when the world has many questions, when there's sorrow, anger, weakness, a holy God is our only hope. 
And this vision that we see recorded here by the prophet Isaiah can be the delight of our souls as we are shown both the unfathomable holiness of God and the unmerited grace He shows to those who fear Him. My prayer this morning, brothers and sisters, is that our view of God might be stretched this morning and we would leave here being subdued by His glory. So as we dig into this passage, there are three themes I want us to keep in mind. The first is that the unfathomable holiness of God in verses 1-4. through four. The second, the natural response of those in His presence in verse 5. And third, the unmerited grace He shows to those who fear Him in verses 6 and 7. So look again with me to verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. The year was roughly 740 B.C. when King Uzziah died. And as you know, the vast majority of Israel and Judah's kings are not remembered fondly. But Uzziah, despite some hiccups at the end of his life, is different. He brought much stability and success to the nation of Judah during his reign. And looming in the background is this growing concern with an Assyrian threat. The death of Uzziah doesn't just mark the death of a well-loved king. It marks the end of stability. Yet in that same year, Isaiah tells us, I saw the Lord. The Hebrew word Adonai. Uzziah may have died. Adonai not. How does Isaiah describe this king? Well, he says he is seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. Adonai is seated in a posture of exaltation. He is transcendent, distinct from us. The throne signifies his right to rule. He sits with the utmost authority, sovereign authority. You know, you don't give God authority. He already has it. He's king over everything that exists and takes place in creation, whether or not he is recognized by the subjects. Adonai is king of kings and lord of lords. Empires rise and fall at his pleasure. Isaiah gives us a bit more detail. He says that the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that at this time robes had trains on them, at least as we think of them now. But what this is to be understood as is the hem of the king's robe. The temple, an extravagant, substantial place of worship, is completely filled with but the hem of his robe. In the ancient Near East, the size of one's garment signified their rank in the royal hierarchy. But we can understand this, can't we? I'm sure we've all seen pictures or videos of coronations where the new monarch marches in, followed by a parade of servants carrying their train down this grand aisle. Although I don't believe several servants could carry the garment depicted here. Adonai is absolutely magnificent. He's full of royal splendor. Yet, I find it interesting that just as the description in Exodus 24 rises no higher than the ground that Yahweh stands on, so here the description again rises no higher than his ankles. It's as if language itself contains not the words to bear further depiction of the Holy One. It must stop at the hem of his robe. 
Isaiah then turns to describe the heavenly throne room in verse 2. Here he tells us that other beings surround the throne. He refers to them as the seraphim, a Hebrew term meaning burning or fiery ones. Many have tried to understand what these beings are because they never show up again in Scripture under the same name. But if we cannot be precise in our understanding, there is one thing we can be certain of, and that is they are not babies with wings flying around God's head playing harps. See, two verses later, we see that their voices shook the foundations of the heavenly throne room. These beings are nothing short of terrifying. And fire is often associated with God's holiness in Scripture. And so it's entirely appropriate that those beings which declare the Lord's praises should be described in this way. You may remember Moses' face needed to be veiled when he saw only the veiled glory of Yahweh because of the brightness with which it shone. Those beings which are forever in the presence of Yahweh God are permanently engulfed in fire. Isaiah describes these beings further. He says they had six wings. With two, he covered his face. That is to shield his eyes in deference to such holiness as not even the fiery ones dare to gaze upon the Lord's unmitigated glory. You know, this is not like wearing sunglasses to the beach. This is light so blinding that the fiery ones have no choice but to put up a barrier or to look away. And with two, he covered his feet. To cover one's feet is a symbol of modesty in the ancient Near East. That is, the seraphim stand in the presence of such perfection that they humbly and submissively cover themselves before him. It's as if they're covering their creatureliness. And with two, he flew, most likely displaying speed to do the Lord's bidding. That is, whatever Adonai may ask, they jump to action. But we must not become so overly focused on the anatomy of these beings that we miss the point. You see, when God created his creatures, he made them fit for their environment. So when he created birds, he gave them feathers and wings and hollow bones with which to fly. To fish, he gave gills and scales and fins suitable for life under the water. And to those beings that would be in his own presence, he gave wings to shield their faces, to cover themselves in humility, and to fly to do his bidding. The point is that every aspect of these creatures declares more to us the unfathomable holiness of God. And this, this is our God. And now, if the appearance of the seraphim had not sufficiently communicated to Isaiah the awesomeness of God, Isaiah is now given a very clear interpretation of what he's being shown. Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The beauty, the glory, the majesty, it can all be summarized in this exaltation that God is holy, holy, holy. Some of us might remember the famous observation of R.C. Sproul that God is never described as love, 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 nor as mercy, 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 nor as wrath, wrath, wrath. 
And not even as justice, 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 but He is holy, holy, holy. In English, we add the suffix est onto the end of a word to raise it to what we call the superlative. That is to say, she's not only kind, she is the kindest in a class by itself. Nothing compares. Well, in the Hebrew tradition, repetition is one of the primary literary techniques to elevate the significance of a word or a phrase. This threefold repetition is the strongest form of the Hebrew superlative. And it is the only attribute of God elevated to this degree. So what is holiness? Well, holiness is often thought of in two categories. The first category is that of otherness or separateness. The idea behind the Hebrew word itself is that to be cut off from the rest, separate. So to refer to God as holy is to say that He is wholly other. He is separate from and independent of nature and humanity. And we understand this even if only subconsciously. For example, think of the term holiday or holy day. It is a day that is separate from other typical calendar days. So to call God holy is to suggest that He is separate from creation, transcendent over us, not bound by things we are bound by. He's in a class all by Himself. The second category that Scripture presents for God's holiness is in connection with His morality. That is to say that God's holiness indicates that He is completely pure, unstained. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. And because of this, God cannot be in the presence of sin. God's holiness means that evil must be dealt with. So holiness then refers to both separateness and purity. But as good as these concepts are, these categories for holiness, it seems to me like there's still something missing. I mean, did the seraphim really say God is moral, moral, moral? Or that God is separate, separate, separate. Was that their song? It seems to me that at the most precise level, holiness is a term that can really only be applied to God Himself. What is holiness? God. The seraphim continue their song by crying that the whole earth is full of His glory. And so if holiness can be thought of as transcendence and purity, the best way to understand the glory of God is a revelation of His holiness. I've heard John Piper say that God's glory is when God's holiness goes public. I think that's helpful. When God shows Himself to be holy, we see glory. And to say that the whole earth is full of His glory is to say that every square inch of this planet screams of His holiness. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So as the seraphim fly about, the powerful praises causes the thresholds of the temple to shake. This 
is the response that is to be produced at the appearance of Yahweh of hosts. This great hymn, so thunderous, that it rocked the building to its very foundations. Let me ask you, does this not take on a new significance in light of not being able to sing in church for the past few weeks, months? We're very thankful for the opportunity to participate in non-robust singing, of course. But don't we long for the opportunity to join with the seraphim and likewise shake the foundations of our churches with explosive praise for our holy God once again. As they sing, the sanctuary fills with smoke. The smoke is reminiscent of the cloud of God's presence elsewhere in the Old Testament. You see, it would have provided a protective barrier between the glory of God and Isaiah as God is not to be surveyed casually by human eyes. But picture the scene as Isaiah. The overwhelming holiness of God. The thunderous cry of the fiery seraphim. The shaking of the ground beneath your feet. The smoke billowing all around you. There's little doubt in my mind that at this point Isaiah would have been trembling on the ground. Just trying to shield himself from such a display of glory. But now Isaiah can no longer bear the hurricane of emotion that's welling up inside of him. He needs an emotional catharsis. And it's this that brings us to our second theme. The response of those who come into his presence. Look at verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Yahweh of hosts. So the image of such glory becomes too much for Isaiah to bear, and he cries out in affliction. You'll remember that the task of the Old Testament prophet was to deliver the word of Yahweh to the people of God. And should they fail to repent, the prophet would deliver a woe or a curse upon the people. But here, As Isaiah is called by God, the first curse he pronounces is upon himself. He says, I am undone. I am lost. Isaiah felt as though he had been disassembled, ruined, cut off. The holiness of the king is such that the very sight of him appears fatal to the sinner. And Isaiah expresses such despair because he's being crushed by the weight of Yahweh's supreme holiness. He, just as the people of Judah, is unclean. And having heard the seraphim's song and seen the glory of the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah knows that his lips, which have been used for evil, could not deliver proper praise to a holy God. You see, the lips in this passage, stand in place of Isaiah's whole being. His lips are unclean as they are an expression of his heart and will. And in the presence of the Holy One, Isaiah is made aware of his true state, knowing that he is inwardly perverse and that his lips testify to this. This is the response of all those who truly come before God. To declare that we are unclean in his presence. You may remember the response of the Apostle Peter when he first saw Jesus' authority over nature, authority that only God can have. 
he fell to Jesus' knees and he cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Brothers and sisters, dwell deeply with me on this very point. Paul, in quoting the Psalms, writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How are we able to hear this and not tremble? We don't understand the significance of this statement. Don't buy into this modern understanding that man is basically good. All of us have sinned. We were born in sin. We are inclined towards sin. And the natural heart loves it. It defends it. Though we are not at all times as sinful as we could be, without the restraining hand of God, oh, how quickly would we collapse into utter villainy. If we are naturally as corrupt as Scripture says that we are, how could we ever stand before the throne of a holy God that we've been reading of this morning? You see, what makes sin so terrible is that it is committed against God. When Isaiah cried out, it was because for the first time he had become truly aware of who God was. The only response of those who see God's holiness is to cry, woe is me. This is the beginning of true repentance. And all who have experienced this know that they are in no position to receive mercy. But look with me to verses 6 and 7. Here lies our third theme the bestowal of unmerited grace upon his children. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So God does not leave Isaiah in this state of desperation. Because God does not reveal himself to his own children to destroy them but to redeem them. So God commands one of the seraphim to make his way to a heavenly altar and retrieve a single burning coal. The altar represents divine wrath. For it was on the altar where God accepted a blood sacrifice. And we know from Leviticus and Hebrews that there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of blood. So the seraph uses tongs to bring a glowing coal representing the atoning sacrifice to a desperate man. And he places it onto Isaiah's lips and, and melts off the filth that mars the flesh of his mouth, the loudspeaker of Isaiah's evil heart. Notice that Isaiah simply confessed that he was guilty. And yet God shows mercy nonetheless. With free grace, Isaiah was purified by fire. You see, this same holy God, this eternal consuming fire bids you, come my child. This same holy God whose greatness and purity forces all who come into His presence to respond in sorrow over their sin has a place for you at His table. 
How can this be? Our sin is too great and committed against too holy of a being to be left unpunished. And this poses a significant problem, but Paul writes in Ephesians that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But again, I ask, how did He do this? I don't know about you, but I have yet to feel a seraphim sear my sinful lips with coal from a heavenly altar. Am I still in my sins? Hebrews tells us that the blood of sheep and bulls is insufficient and that the blood of an ultimate sacrifice is necessary to allow a sinful human being like Isaiah, like me, to come before the presence of a holy God. The coal pressed against Isaiah's lips represents an atoning sacrifice that was yet to take place in time history. And nearly six and a half centuries after this vision took place, Jesus Christ took on human flesh, lived a perfectly sinless life, healed the sick, cast out demons, and bore witness to His Father, all while focusing on His primary objective, to take the place of sinners beneath the gavel of God's justice. The only hope for a sinner like me was for the perfect Son of God to be slain in my stead. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is where we see supremely a great union of God's holiness, justice, and love. And because of Jesus Christ, we too can now stand before the throne of a holy God. You see, Isaiah is a picture for us of all those who stand before God in utter hopelessness and yet are given hope with the perfection necessary to stand in the presence of a holy God, entirely supplied. It is Jesus Christ that allows us to make this vision the delight of our souls. A holy God and a sinful people, reconciled, redeemed, forgiven, justified, and able to stand before Adonai. As I close, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle John as he describes his vision of the heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 5. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Because of Christ, the Lamb that was slain, we too can delight in the holiness of God and we can join in the song sung through the ages by countless seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Son 
through whose sacrifice we can delight in your holiness. We can stand before you as your children whom you love. Father, may we remember your holiness this week. Give you the praise you deserve. In Christ's name.